You're listening to the Coronavirus Special, brought to you by the EBRD. So, hello and welcome to the latest in our series of digital conversations organised by the Office of the Chief Economist uh, at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And today we're looking at the nature of inequality during and after the coronavirus pandemic. My name is Jonathan Charles. I'm the EBRD's Managing Director for Communications. I'll be moderating today's session. And 23rd of January, this coming Saturday, marks a year since Wuhan, a city in China considered to be the epicenter of the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak. And of course, a year since it went into its first lockdown. Since then, for many of us, lockdowns have become a new normal. Most of us have felt the devastating effects of the lockdowns, both economic and the impact, of course, on people's mental health. But some of us have been more affected than others. The COVID-19 crisis has exacerbated the already existing inequalities in both opportunities and outcomes, from access to education, food insecurities, to gender inequality, and many others beside. In October 2020, the World Bank estimated that global extreme poverty is set to rise for the first time in over 20 years. Millions will have to live on less than $1.90 a day. Inequality may be the biggest policy challenge after and during this pandemic. The same is true for the EBRD regions where we've made one of our key priorities, the addressing of inequality. And we're currently working on a new strategic approach around that. Well, to discuss all this and more, it's my pleasure to welcome our special guest today. So Angus Deaton is Professor, a Nobel Prize Laureate in Economics and Senior Scholar at the School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. His book, Deaths of Despair, co-written with Anne Case, is a groundbreaking account of how the flaws in capitalism are fatal for America's working class. Branko Milanovic is a presidential professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and a senior fellow at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality, the author of many books exposing inequality, amongst them, Capitalism Alone. We also have with us Beata Javorczyk. She's the EBRD's chief economist and a professor of economics at the University of Oxford. And uh, very shortly, we'll also be hearing from the EBRD president, Odile Renaud-Basso, on the subject of inequality, which will play a major part in shaping our investment approach and our approach on policy over the next five years. Before we hear from Odile, uh, a few housekeeping rules, as always on these events. This event is being streamed live on the EBRD Facebook page, as well as via Zoom. For Facebook Live viewers, post your questions in the comments. Before we start our discussion, a few pointers for those of you joining us on Zoom. Please make sure you mute yourself and keep your video off. You can put questions to the panel in the chat box and introduce yourself when you post your question. We'd love to know who it is who's asking the question. We'll take your questions in the final half hour or so, roughly from about four o'clock to 4.30 uh, UK time. Well, that will translate into the uh, time zones where you are, uh, but roughly in about 55 minutes time, we'll take uh, questions from you, the audience. So please put them in there. We would love to hear from you. Uh, and we're going to begin our debate in a minute. But first of all, we're going to hear from Odile. Odile. Thank you very much, Jonathan, and uh, I'm very happy to be with you today and particularly honored to uh, welcome uh, two professors, uh, Angus Dutton and Banko Milanovic, together with uh, our chief economist, Beata. I think that it will be, I'm looking forward for the discussion, which uh, should be extremely interesting. Today's focus is, as mentioned by uh, Jonathan, inequalities, and I think it's a very important issue for us as EBRD. It's also a very important issue for me personally. Personally. 
Inequalities have been growing in the last, in the recent past. It's not a new issue. Um, there have been, I mean, globalization, changes in labor market, and so forth triggered an, an increased issue of inequalities in our economies. But of course, the COVID crisis has also added to this challenge and probably exacerbated the inequalities within the countries with a huge economic crisis we are all facing and trying to deal with. I think it's clear that the impact on inequalities are expected to be large and wide. So why it is important for, for me and why it is important for the EPRD? The first issue is, of course, an issue of principle. Having people, I mean, having people with uh, same gifts, same skills, being able to make up of their skill and whatever their gender, whatever their origin, whatever their countries uh, of origin is, their personal circumstances, it's a very important issue of principle. It's also a very important issue in terms of economic development and political stability. Inequalities, I mean, may have an impact on economic development. Growth depends on inclusion and economic and political stability depends on the, uh, the adherence of citizens to the principles of the functioning of the society's institution, confidence in the institution, adherence to the market economy principle. And when there is the feeling that things are unfair, that equal opportunities are not there, then the trust is undermined with possibly deep, deep political and uh, economic consequences. And we see that in a number of countries with the rise of populism and so forth, which is a big challenge for all of us. The third reason why I'm very happy to have this debate today is because, as mentioned by uh, Jonathan, this is a key priority for the EBRD, the strategy approved by our shareholders Inequalities and equal opportunities are uh, is one of the three cross-cutting challenges together with climate change, which is also and uh, digitalization. But we will focus a lot of our efforts on this issue. We need to define an approach, a strategy to deal with that, to see how we can finance projects, develop policies that will be supportive to the development of equal opportunities. And that's why for us in particular, in the, it's of very high interest to listen from our guests, to learn from them, to help thinking about how we can better uh, deal with this uh, issue, which is, uh, as I was saying, very important. I will stop there now to let them speak and uh, to, to give them to the panel. Thank you very much once again. Thank you very much indeed, Odile, and some thoughts there to start our conversation. So let's move on to the discussion. Uh, let, let's start with an important question, perhaps to set the debate up. Why is this focus on inequality so important? What is it about the issue of inequality which matters so much in economics and for economies and for societies? Uh, let me ask you all. Uh, Angus, let me start with you. What, what's your view as to why this is the crucial, one of the crucial issues? Well, I, I do think it's a crucial issue, um, but that question, why are we so concerned with it? Why is it so important? It's actually a much harder one than it may seem to be. And I think it's partly that people have very different notions of what inequality means. And in fact, in um, the president's remarks just now, um, she focused on a lot of things that I think are more important than the traditional things that economists worry about. So if you scratch an economist and you ask them about inequality, they tend to immediately think about income inequality. 
And a lot of economists have spent a lot of their time measuring income inequality within countries, across countries, and all the rest of it. And that's certainly very, very important. But there's a lot of stuff it doesn't capture at all. For instance, it doesn't tell you anything about differences between groups. In the United States, racial inequality, for instance, is a huge thing. Gender inequality is incredibly important um, all around the world. And the income inequality misses what I think is a more crucial um, set of principles. And I, I'm very attracted by the ideas of the philosopher Elizabeth Anderson, um, who likes to talk about the desirable case is not one in which everybody's equal or everybody gets what they deserve, which you might think is another form of equality, but one in which there's a society in which people have equal respect and equal standing to one another within the society. So that's the sort of ideal. And then that immediately takes us into questions of institutions, of procedures, of procedural justice, of groups, and whether different people are indeed um, seen equally in society and have an equal chance. Now, of course, extreme income inequality may undermine that broader notion of relational inequality, which is sometimes called. And so that brings that in, but it also brings in these issues of inequality between people, between gender, between race, um, between regions, um, between indigenous people and other people, all the sort of things that come up under the inequality banner. And I think those things, this equal respect within society, relational inequality between people is for me much the more crucial issue in inequality. And that seems to me to capture a lot of the other issues that we're concerned with. All right, thank you, Angus, for getting us going. Uh, Branko, how do you see this, this issue of inequality and its, and its crucial focus in this debate? Well, I'm a, you know, I listen carefully to Angus and I, uh, my view, I mean, I, I agree obviously with Angus, but I, I, my view is a little bit more traditional, uh, maybe because of course, you know, what I do is really most of the time they're calculating inequality. Uh, but I, I would say uh, the, all the, in my opinion, the key issues have already been mentioned. The first one, I think that there is an instrumental case for lower income inequality very often, not always, but often, uh, that in the sense that high inequality may be associated with a reduction in rate of growth that an economy can achieve. So that would be instrumental case. Uh, then the second case is, it was mentioned by Odile already, that was inequality of opportunity. So in the past, we believed that actually that the two things are not, I mean, they are correlated. We thought actually like in the idea of the American dream that you could have very high inequality of outcomes and that high inequality of outcomes might even lead to a lower inequality of inequality of, of opportunity. Well, nowadays we know from the work, you know, of Miles uh, Korak, uh, Chetty, Mazumdar, we know that the two of them are correlated positively so that higher inequality of income is associated with high inequality of opportunity. So that would be the second argument. The third one mentioned by Angus, and I think he has insisted that in his uh, book actually um, quite a lot, is inequality of income again, leading to inequality in political power. And I think that's something that has really been 
very present and people have written quite a lot about that, you know, political scientists uh, like, like uh, Larry Bertels and others. So these would be my three reasons. Let me just last, make a last point because Angus was mentioning quite a lot the issue of uh, categorical inequalities. So sometimes they're called existential inequalities. Inequalities between genders, race, regions, you know, uh, age actually also. Uh, there, I, I fully agree. However, I think that sometimes there is, and I think it's interesting thinking about it, there is a tension between the reduction in those inequalities where you might actually strive to equalize the means or the medians between, I mean, different races or genders and others, and inequality and reduction of inequality or, or income in wealth. In other words, to, just to be very clear, you can have a situation where you would not have any gender inequality, the two distributions of wages, for example, for men and women would be exactly the same and there will be the same returns to education, to age, to experience and all of that. However, the overall inequality within the, the group of women and group of men and the overall inequality may be very high. So I just want to mention that the attainment of the equality between these categories does not immediately mean that we have reached our final objective. All right, thank you, Branka. Beata. So I agree with what has been said, but let me add the perspective of countries where we operate, in particular post-communist economies. I think inequality matters there because it undermines support for reforms. If people feel that reforms have been unjust, that they have been made worse off in relative terms, they are not going to support further reforms. And these reforms are often necessary and needed to lay foundations for future growth. Now, if you think about the poster child for transition, Poland, um, that's a country where all deciles of the population have seen an increase in income in absolute terms. However, um, those who are at the sort of higher end of the this income distribution have enjoyed greater gains. So even though everybody is better off in absolute terms, um, some people are better off in relative terms. And that has generated a lot of discontent and actually, you know, to the point that one of the major political parties won elections on the platform that transition has been mismanaged. So relative differences matter to people. And that's, I think, associated with respect. And, you know, unhelpfully, often um, some politicians talk uh, tend to blame people for their fate. And in a sense, blame is being shifted on those who are not doing very well in the new reality. And then in turn, they tend to uh, resist reforms. Thank you. Thank you, Beata. All right, so we've set uh, the framework of what we mean, uh, the parameters and why inequality matters. Obviously today, we're looking, about, uh, looking at inequality in the COVID-19 crisis. And I wonder how you think this crisis, this pandemic is changing the nature of inequality, if you think it's changing the nature of inequality. Maybe you think it's just highlighting existing inequalities, but, but it plays into the whole inequality question somewhere. Angus. Yes, I mean, I think um, it's um, fairly well understood now how 
within countries, um, the COVID pandemic has affected different groups differently. And the work that Anne Case and I have been doing that you were kind enough to refer to at the beginning has focused in the United States on this division by people who have a four-year college degree, about a third of the population, two-thirds of the population who do not. And COVID has cut across that distinction um, too, very sharply. Um, many, a much higher fraction of people with a BA can stay home and work on Zoom or work at home, um, while a lot of the less educated people either have lost their jobs or their jobs have been threatened. Um, and they're doing jobs which are risky. So they're risking both their lives um, and their livelihoods. And that seems pretty commonplace. Um, we actually saw before the pandemic, and we have a recent paper that's just about to come out, I hope, um, and that life expectancy in the United States, which has been falling, it reached its peak in 2014. Um, all of that fall is driven by people without a BA and people with a BA are quite exempt and their life expectancy goes on rising. So this is exacerbating the initial inequalities, but there are new ones. So the COVID is um, disproportionately killing Hispanics, for example. And Hispanics have actually higher life expectancy than whites um, before. There's also the whole question of the stock market, which I think is fairly unique to the United States, in which um, you know the stock market is now trading at all-time record levels, way higher than before the pandemic. Um, the half dozen richest people in the country and the world have made about an extra trillion dollars in wealth because of the pandemic. And this is at a time when we've lost 400,000 people in America. So you've got this event that comes along that kills 400,000 people and makes the 10 richest people um, incredibly richer. So Jeff Bezos got an extra 80 billion, for example, as a result of the pandemic. Now, I think that's not a stable situation. And I think there's going to be a long-term backlash um, against big tech. Um, and especially the role that big tech has played in the events of the last month or so. That's, a, that's an interesting point, isn't it, uh, Angus? Because, you know, you're, you're beginning to point that these are not necessarily temporary exacerbations of inequality that we're seeing. We may be seeing some, some which will endure for quite a while. I think that's right. And um, if we get onto it, I'll also talk about, Frank and I have been corresponding the last few days over international inequality, and I have a new yes. paper um, arguing that that's actually got better during COVID, um, or at least, the, and that's a very good illustration of why inequality is not a welfare measure. You've got this horrible pandemic that's killing millions of people, and it's narrowing international inequalities. Well, so what? That doesn't make it a good epidemic. We'll come back to that because that is an important issue, especially for us in a multilateral development bank and one of a, a lot of interest. Uh, Branko, how, how do you see this COVID-19 impact on, on this issue? Well, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't have much <clears throat> sort of new to say, you know, it's, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm sure we will speak of Angus's paper, which is the first paper that looks at, uh, uh, you know, empirically at what has happened to global and inter-country inequality in the world, because obviously until now we were sort of guessing, but nobody had the numbers. So we will talk about that in a minute. I think one issue that was really highlighted with you know, what has happened now 
if you look at the continuum, we had, and of course people who work on Eastern Europe remember that, we had a huge crisis, especially in Russia, uh, with a transition, with a significant declines in life expectancy, with sort of death of despair, to use you know, Angus's uh, term that you know, he coined later in the book. <clears throat> um, and um, you know, increased in, um, for example, alcohol poisoning. Assassinate, uh, killings, assassinations, all kinds of social pathologies. Excuse me. Then we had the same thing, not as dramatic, but pretty dramatic uh, in the US. As, as Angus said, like the decline in life expectancy. Re really, nobody could have expected, you know, 20 years ago that the US would have a decline in life expectancy. And in, in some categories of population, quite dramatic one. Uh, and now we have COVID, which is really a global phenomenon. And I actually think it is maybe the first global phenomenon in history of uh, humankind. Maybe it sounds sort of exaggerated, but I think that even when you look at, at wars that we had in the past, and they were of course enormous and intensive, but they did not really affect large parts of the globe in their daily life. Uh, COVID has really affected practically everybody with some isolated communities being maybe exceptions. Uh, so I, I think it is really, it is a, a huge shock and um, it has produced, uh, and it will continue producing because we are not at the end of it, big changes including, and I will stop there, but including political, uh, I think there will be certainly political repercussions in the years to come. Uh, just let me mention that if you look at the effects of the financial crisis, they were political effects were not immediate. The political effects came with some delay of a couple of years or more. And I would not be surprised that the same thing happens with COVID. Yeah, so I definitely want to return to that issue because I, I think, you know, you can't divorce the politics from the economics and vice versa. So I, I, we'll come back to that in the next round, I think. Beata, initial thoughts on the impact of COVID. So a lot has been said about the impact of COVID on youth and on women. To a large extent, that was driven and has been driven um, by sectoral composition of employment. Women tend to work um, in sectors that have been hit harder. But let me focus on an aspect of inequality that has not received a lot of attention, namely skilled women. So many of us have been very fortunate to be able to work from home. Um, but working from home is much harder for women um, at the time when they have to combine work with homeschooling. And this is visible in the data. For instance, um, job websites report that women have been withdrawing from the labor market during COVID, that um, they are less likely to apply for jobs. Um, studies have been published on, you know, who among academics tends to submit new papers and it's you know, more likely to be men rather than women. And you know, there's a very uh, nice study coming out from Oxford pre-COVID, which looked at so-called Amazon Mechanical Turk. Um, this is a platform which allows people um, to do small tasks which pay per piece and they can work from home. And what that study shows that even though there is no difference between the tasks, the type of tasks that men and women pick, uh, women are paid 20% less. 
And that's explained by the fact that women tend to face more interruptions as they work. So they perform the tasks much slower. And this wage differential is driven by women with small children. So now, as we work from home, as in many countries, schools are closed, women, women's career are going to be hurt because you know men will step up, they will take up these additional tasks, they will be visible, while women will have to take a step back to combine challenges of working with challenges on the home front. Also, there is a danger that as we are emerging from the pandemic, uh, we will lose momentum. Uh, you know, we've gained uh, when talking about gender equality at the workplace. You know, there, there was this momentum, but now as we emerge from the pandemic, we'll worry about, you know, firm survival, about debt. A lot of emphasis will be put on green issues. And I worry that the equality, gender equality agenda will be forgotten. Over to you, John. You, yeah. you, you don't think then, Beata, perhaps that the gender inequality, the current worsening in this crisis, then will be a temporary affair that might, you know, might bounce back, of course, once the, the lockdowns are over, the worst of the crisis is over. You think it may endure? So I, I think we will see a lot of bounce back. So, for instance, hospitality sector, which tends to employ women, is going to bounce back. So women will regain workplaces. Uh, you know, as schools open, women will be um, able to, to focus again on their careers, right? So, so this will be a level effect. You know, this, this sort of women, this setback will be um, temporary if women will be able to make it up, right? But a more worrisome trend is, will this gender equality agenda be forgotten? Because that's right. what's Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. Um, let me just remind everybody watching, by the way, we'll come to your questions in about half an hour or so. If you're on Facebook, if you're watching on Facebook Live, post your questions in the comments section on Facebook Live. If you're on Zoom, joining us on Zoom, please put your questions uh, to the panel in the chat box and we will come to them a little later on. Uh, let's just at the moment look at the intersection between politics and economics here because it was raised just a, a minute ago by Branker uh, on this whole issue of the aftermath of the financial crisis and what that meant for politics. And I wonder if you see parallels here. And, and one thinks, obviously, in, in some countries, particularly where governments pursued austerity, uh, that that's uh, brought about some major, quite, change, quite major changes to the political foundations uh, and to political approaches. I wonder if you worry that something like this might happen this time as governments seek to recoup the billions, the hundreds of billions they've had to pay out to, to sort out economies and keep them going in this crisis. Where, where does that play into? Where do the economics play into the politics here? Angus? No, I mean, that, I, that issue, I think, is very much in the forefront of my mind. But, um, you know, the forces who, the deficit hawks, the people who don't want to see government spending or activist government, are being stilled for the moment um, because of the necessities of the pandemic and because people dying all around them. But the result is that most rich countries have run up enormous deficits, uh, which actually may have moderated or even reversed inequality within the countries um, in actual monetary terms, um, even not in the sort of terms that the other was talking about. Um, but this money is going to be there, and, and you know that money's been spent. Um, there's a very large government deficit. The government debt is much larger than it was before. 
and the deficit pops are going to come back. And, you know, that's one of the things that the macroeconomists have been talking about very intelligently. But it already came up in Janet Yellen's confirmation hearings um, yesterday, where it's clear that many of the Republicans want this money back. Um, they want to cut benefits. Um, and, you know, the, the foundations of austerity are really there all over. But just to come back to another part of politics, what Brankwitz said, I think, is very true, that the financial crisis, the misbehavior of the banks, didn't have political effects immediately, but poisoned the atmosphere and was a great contributor to the populist wave and to Donald Trump after that. I think this time, you know, big tech to some extent is going to be the targets. That's not something, I mean, it'll bounce back, but certainly not all the way. So the COVID undoubtedly has strengthened all the e-sectors um, of the economy, um, the power of the tech giants, and I, it's very unpredictable what that's going to do, but that's going to be another big political issue over the next um, five years or so. Yes, I'd definitely like to come to the role of companies a little later on, because I think there is a, you know, an interesting uh, question to be examined there. I wonder, though, just Angus, before we move on to Branko, whether you think governments are capable of learning from the mistakes of the aftermath of the financial crisis and their handling of economy, or whether they're going, you think they're going to repeat the same errors? <laughs> no, I don't think they repeat the same errors, but I also don't think they learn. I mean, I think people's <laughs> views are changed by what's happened. And so when the wheel comes round again, it's always different. There are different actors with different sets of views, which is one of the reasons that makes it really so predictable. Um, for instance, it's clear that on the right in, in the US, um, the idea that trickle down really works um, is far from dead. I mean, there was a long op-ed by the editorial board in the Wall Street Journal the day before yesterday, congratulating the economists who worked for Trump in engineering the greatest economic boom there had ever been um, through the tax cuts of 2017 and employing arguments that are completely uncheckable. Like, you know, some people think it was the Obama boom, but the Obama boom was almost dead before the Trump tax cuts picked it up. Well, you know, people are trying to shape those narratives all the time so that the players change, but the same views are recycled through and held by different people and with different balances of power between them. But I think there's going to be serious long-term consequences of this, not all of which are positive. On the other hand, it has been demonstrated that activist government on a large scale is possible. Yes, and I think that's an interesting point. Again, I definitely want to come back to that because I, I think that's one of the interesting lessons of this as well. Branko, how do you see this? Well, I, I am... I see really the tension between, on the one hand, and I'm not a macroeconomist, so take this with some caveat, uh, between uh, the amount of debt, which is now, I think in the US is now at 100%, in other countries it's higher. I think the UK is like one of uh, probably the highest in, the, in history, uh, or the second highest. Uh, the tension of like piling up the debt, and on the, one, on the other hand, the need for the state to be back. Somebody mentioned, I think Beata mentioned it before, the state will have to be back in order precisely to actually make up for, the, for some of the problems that we have seen with austerity, which left, for example, in many countries, the, the uh, hospitals understaffed, uh, did not provide the PPP equipment, did not actually have enough uh, 
ICU units and so on. So on, and then particularly in the United States, you have huge needs, infrastructure investments, and of course, for all the green technology. So we need, we have, we are now in a situation where it seems to me that the needs have been even exacerbated by the crisis. On the other hand, we had an incredible expansion through stimulus, which I think also nobody could even envisage a situation where you have 20% of GDP being basically printed as a new money and increasing the debt. So I, I really, I'm just simply worried how these two things will, will work out. And uh, this is obviously something that is, is a macroeconomic issue. Some people, as you know, say that it really, particularly for the United States, which has a reserve currency, they believe it really doesn't matter because uh, uh, you know, the modern monetary theory seems to argue that it really doesn't matter. Uh, I'm uh, more old fashioned in that. I think that eventually it will matter and that this uh, uh, tension between the two would, uh, would play a big role. Now, if there is a tension between the, the two, then we really run into political issues there because then you really cannot uh, have enough resources to do all these other things that we should be doing now. And uh, that I think would actually then lead to political um, disenchantment and political problems. All right, thank you, Branko. I'm definitely not getting into modern monetary theory. We will definitely not do that in this debate. Uh, Beata. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you for not getting into new monetary theory. Everybody will be grateful, I think. So, so. Um, as we showed in the latest transition report, um, during the global financial crisis, private banks have retreated. And it was the state banks that stepped in and were providing credit. And, and that's not surprising because state-owned banks um, know that if need be, typically they will be bailed out by governments. But what we also showed in the report, which is very troublesome, is that banks are subject to political interference. So what worries me is that as uh, state-owned banks may be stepping in during the current crisis, credit may be going not to the firms with the brightest prospects, but to firms which are connected to political elites, firms that are connected to their political allies. And the same thing may be happening with the vast amount of money um, that have been spent and are being spent by governments. So I worry that you know, corrupt governments may emerge stronger uh, from this crisis. Let's, um, let's focus still on the role of government. I mean, it could be argued, couldn't it, that the inequalities which have been brought to light, you know, even though they exist for a long time, they've been brought definitely into the spotlight by this crisis. Uh, hard for governments to ignore the fact that poorer people die, you know, more often than, you know, earlier than, uh, than, than wealthier people. The fact that, as you pointed out, has been pointed out in this debate, that uh, if you're better educated, you can in some way shelter away from this by working from home. Many, many equalities have been brought to light. The quality of housing, you know, and the difference that that makes to uh, in the COVID crisis. Things that are really hard for government now to uh, ignore and to, uh, especially when they've asked people to pull together as one society, as they often have in many countries. So I wonder what you think that means, Angus, for, for the role of government going forward, whether they can 
at some stage just return to business as usual, or whether it is now such a point that they really can't ignore us. They're going to have to do something about this, even if they hadn't intended to. Um, I don't think we're going to go back to business as usual. I mean, I think that's a fantasy um, which some of us <laughs> sometimes like to indulge in, but it certainly isn't going to happen. Um, I think of it a little bit differently. I think of governments as composed by politicians, and politicians are under pressure in various ways um, to deal with things that have not been dealt with. So, you know, one of the more horrible but nevertheless interesting episodes is, you know, right-wing politicians in the United States changing themselves into populists. And actually coming up, you know, if you listen to Holly, Senator Holly from Missouri, for instance, talking, um, he does a much more convincing populist line than Donald Trump does. Um, so that some of the things he talks about really would help um, poor people, would it's much less clear um, Donald Trump has helped. So I think those things will certainly, you know, people, politicians find these points of anger and they use them to get votes and bring big issues into political debates and can force governments to do things. Um, there's also what's happened, of course, is that the repudiation of Donald Trump um, which probably would not have happened without COVID, has produced a bunch, not a bunch, I mean, a, a group of people in charge in Washington who are very much concerned with inequality issues. So that, you know, Janet Yellen um, has always been much concerned um, with um, inequality issues in a way that people in the Trump administration um, have not. I, I remember that Anne and I were at a dinner party once and she had the good luck or bad luck to be sitting next to Secretary Mnuchin at one end of the table. And I was sitting next to Christine Lagarde and Janet Yellen at the other end of the table. And Anne was having an incredibly hard time. You know, Mnuchin said, what do you work on? She says, I work on the opioid crisis. And he said, we have an opioid crisis in America? What are you talking about? What does that have to do with economics? And at the other end of the table, I had Christine Lagarde and Janet Yellen descend on me like vultures saying, tell me about depths of despair. We want to know what's going on here. And so, so this is a very different administration um, from the administration. And that's the operation of politics. And they will certainly, they've got the work cut out. And it's not an easy environment in which to work. But it's a huge difference having decent people who really care about these things in positions of power in Washington from a world in which it's not. I think more directly on your question, the thing that really is going to um, cause political ructions is what to do about big tech. And there are all those questions like cutting, giving credit of the power to decide whether the president can speak to the people or not, the enormous profits that Amazon, should there be two Amazons or three Amazons, you know, the, the whole neglect of antitrust, um, the way that economics and law have tied together to basically um, gut um, antitrust enforcement over the last 20 or 30 years. I think those issues are all going to come back and bite us, and the politicians will respond to those. Thank you, Angus. Uh, Branko? Well, I, I think there is also, uh, just thinking about it, a big issue that we have not mentioned yet, so let me just simply mention it. I obviously don't have a solution to it, but, you know, uh, the, the difference in the handling of this crisis between East Asian countries, including, uh, I mean, Pacific countries, including Australia and New Zealand as well, 
and everybody else, especially in Europe and the United States, is just so striking that uh, uh, I, I'm sure there will be years and years of dissertations written about that. I uh, obviously don't have an answer to that. I simply note that it is the outcomes are entirely different from what was predicted. Um, you know, in October of 2019, Johns Hopkins University and the Economist Intelligence Unit put together, this is really serendipity, put together a first uh, global preparedness report for the pandemics. And then they ranked countries. And uh, the countries that were ranked number one, two, and three were the US, UK, and the Netherlands. And then you have countries that have done extremely well, like Vietnam, uh, Thailand, uh, China, ranked really very low. And then you have really paradoxical situations that countries which had, if you compare, like take pairs, and you had same rankings, uh, prior rankings, and the outcomes differ by the range of like 50 to one. So that I think, uh, in my opinion, so it shows us first that our expectations were entirely sort of un, uh, how should I say, that were not, they were not justified, they were not verified by reality. So in other words, reality really went totally different. I think we also have to, to start reconsidering all these in other indices that we are doing for many things, including from transparency to, you know, many of these mashup indices, which in this particular case have been totally shown wrong. And then I think we have to investigate why the activist governments in like in East Asia have done so much better. And is there something to learn from that? And last point I've been reading for now one year, every day, the Wall Street Journal and China Daily. And you know, this is like two different worlds. Although the Wall Street Journal spends about half of its articles on China, which is quite extraordinary too, for somebody who is who remembers uh, China of the 1970s. If you were to tell them that the Wall Street Journal would spend half of their pages writing about Chinese internal sort of developments on the on the exchange, stock exchange, companies, and all of that, people would believe that you are nuts. But that's what has come to happen. But you know what you notice in a, an incredible difference in the emphasis. Whenever you had a, a small uh, uh, outburst, I mean, uh, flare ups in China, it, you have the feeling that it is actually, you know, several pages are taken by the articles and what, you know, the number of people who are being tested now for the flare up of COVID is enormous. The city, again, as you know, in Hebei province has been locked down. And on the other hand, you have the articles in the Wall Street Journal that are like, a, a, you know, one column very often simply listing the number of deaths. So this is a, a big, uh, a big difference, I think, between the activist governments and uh, uh, in the U.S. I think practically there was no federal government since this crisis started. Beata, if I could turn to you, I mean, obviously it's a slightly different scenario in many of our countries of operations. You know, do you think we'll see activist governments there because they, they don't really have the same level of resources, of course. Uh, that uh, Western European economies or the United States can call on uh, to deal with these issues of inequality. Thank you, Jonathan. So if you think about Central European countries, right, in 1990, they had almost ideal equality because wages were very compressed. 
Then as they moved to market economies, this decompression was inevitable. But on top of that decompression and emerging skill premium, which skill premium was, I think, essentially non-existent prior to transition, um, they experienced other global trends. So technological progress and globalization. And, and these two extremely powerful forces have increased um, inequality. So you know, to, to sort of come back to your original question, We've, we knew that inequality was there, it was observed. I mean, in the US, for instance, we knew that since I think early 1990s, skill premium was rising, that blue collar workers were not uh, seeing an increase in their wages in real terms. Um, and then it became also very visible um, because those affected were geographically concentrated. And then, you know, a whole literature emerged um, tracing um, labor market impacts and subsequent political fallout to the so-called China shock. In Europe, we talked less about it um, because we have a more generous uh, social protection system. Um, so, so the state took care of people, so it became um, less of an issue, even though, you know, in the UK data, you can see this increase in, in skill premium very clearly. I hope that what's going to happen is we will draw lessons from that because uh, to some extent, perhaps it's, you know, it's a failure of economists. We knew that technological progress and globalization creates winners and losers, but we have always been very optimistic saying, you know, uh, some sectors are shrinking, some sectors are booming, uh, people can move, right? We can always compensate losers. The problem is that if those shocks were geographically concentrated, there were no jobs to move. And, you know, we failed as, as societies to take care of, of losers as, as visible um, in the US. So I hope that there is a lesson there um, when we now in Europe move to, through green transition because green transition is going to disproportionately hit um, some places, particularly in Eastern Europe, which is more coal dependent, more dependent on heavy industry. And it's, it's really important um, to upfront show commitment to, to helping people who, who will be affected. All right, thank you, Beata. Let, let's take a look now at another aspect of this, which is the role of the private sector. Angus, you've mentioned uh, tech companies a few times and obviously the role that they play, and obviously they have a role in digital uh, inequality and working along those and, and, and in various other areas as well. But generally, what do you think now the private sector should be doing in order to help uh, the battle against inequality, Angus? Well, whenever I'm asked that question, I say it would be good if the you know, there are all these discussions about shareholder capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, and all the rest of it. And I'd like to quote Larry Summers on that, who likes to say, well, you know, the first thing these firms should do is pay their taxes. You know, it would be really good if some of these companies are making such enormous sums of money for themselves, their stake shareholders, and for their owners, um, were actually to pay a decent amount of taxes. And, you know, until they start doing that, it's a little hard to take seriously all these other protestations of, of virtue and purity, um, which they, they like to make. So I see that as a token of earnest, if they could do that. 
I'd be much more impressed by the other things. But let me make a more general point. And this has come up sort of from the beginning. I'm not someone who believes that inequality is bad for growth um, and not in a general sort of way. And I'll come back to the tech giants because that's where I'm going with this. Um, that, you know, if you look at the history um, and I tried to look at the history in my book, The Great Escape, um, when you're looking at a stagnant society that's not going anywhere, and Vera was talking about transition Eastern Europe, which is sort of the same thing, um, you can't do this evenly. I mean, some people are going to do much better than others at the beginning of this enterprise. And, you know, when new inventions come along and new entrepreneurs and you get creative destruction, and Felix Aguillon likes, has written wonderful stuff about this, um, you get people getting really, really rich. And that's really a good thing, you know, and it generates inequality. And inequality at that stage is a sign of progress. I mean, it's something we should welcome and we should really encourage. What happens after that is the problem, which is the guys who got really, really rich the first time then turn around and pull up the ladders behind them and stop other people coming and innovating them. And you get all the rent-seeking, you get all the lobbying, you get all the political interference and so on, which helps them maintain their position at the expense of other people. And I think that's the stage we've got to with the tech companies. I always like to think of Google, which I think in the late 90s spent nothing on lobbying and was very disdainful of lobbying. Um, it thought, you know, they had this motto, do no evil. Um, they didn't lobby. We're making great donations to mankind, all of which was true. Now they're the largest lobbyists in Washington. <laughs> and, you know, the, it, what happens is these winners turn into, um, you know, the makers turn into takers, if you like. And that sort of inequality is the inequality we have to deal with. And that's to do with limiting lobbying, um, preventing rent-seeking, um, and keeping society open and enforcing antitrust. So those are really important anti-inequality devices of this kind, of this um, inequality that's become um, calcified um, and is not actually serving any useful social end. Thank you very much, Angus. And Branko, the role of the private sector there, we, we heard uh, Angus in effect saying it's when innovation gives way to monopolistic behavior or oligarchic behavior or protective behavior. Uh, you know, you get uh, where people are protecting their gains, uh, and, and that that doesn't help uh, with with uh, equality. What well, what do you think private sector companies should be doing to combat inequality? Well, I may not be answering your question directly, but let me try to answer to make two points. The first, I I, I agree with Angus. You know, I mentioned the negative role of uh, uh, high inequality on growth, but obviously that role it is like what Chico Ferrer, my friend calls, you know, it's like cholesterol. There is a cholesterol which is good and cholesterol is bad. So clearly uh, uh, some levels of inequality and actually sometimes even high levels of inequality may be good for growth. And I remember also a friend of mine who was a uh, who is this, uh, Czech uh, sociologist, Jerzy uh, Bechernik, who actually did in the 1980s study of inequality in Czechoslovakia. And for example, uh, actually Beata referred to that in a minute. Uh, a, a few minutes ago, Yerji uh, uh, showed that essentially you had a, a distribution of income which was driven by simply demographic characteristics. In other words, there was no return to education. There was no really even uh, return to obviously inventions or so. Essentially, you didn't have 
any incentives for many of the things to produce better or to do it better. So that was clearly a case where a low level of inequality was not good for growth or not good for innovation. Um, so that was one part of, uh, uh, of inequality where actually we have too little of it. Then of course there is, a, as Agnes said, you know, Angus said, you know, there is inequality which has been created and then the winners try to basically cement their positions and to use political power in order to make sure that nobody comes to challenge them. And then there is another inequality where you have like, let's take Latin American example, when you have too much inequality and that too much of inequality impedes ability or limits the ability of people who are poor to essentially you know, contribute to society and to make their position better. Uh, my second point is the one that was, uh, I wanted to refer to something to Beata said before, where I see a chance for countries of you know, Central and Eastern Europe, which is uh, driven by globalization and by the crisis. I think this crisis has really shown us that we can actually uh, use uh, labor much more, much more use labor that is not physically present at their job, like what we are doing precisely now. We are not present in one place, but we can communicate. So many jobs within the past technically could have been done, but we were not really trying to do them, will now really have been shown or will now be used, uh, be uh, done virtually. That I think is a chance for countries with lower wages to actually sort of mimic almost global uh, labor market. And I think this would be maybe the third stage of uh, globalization that going back to a book by Richard Baldwin, you know, The Great Convergence, which I think actually was, was quite prescient in the sense that Richard believed that we would, be, we would move to the third stage, which would be basically mimicking global labor market while staying, of course, in our own um, countries. And I think we have moved to that stage much faster thanks to COVID. Okay, yes, and that's an interesting, very interesting point actually, and probably worthy of a discussion on its own. We might do that at some stage in the future. Uh, Beata. So the short answer to what private sector should do is play by the rules, right? Uh, and that comes back to what Angus was saying, you know, pay your taxes, obey uh, regulation. I think to me, a more interesting question is what governments should and shouldn't do. And here, um, enforcing of antitrust regulations is extremely important. We know that during crises, multinational firms tend to do better. Um, they have deeper pockets. They are more likely to survive. It's, it's small firms um, that are more likely to be wiped out. So what, and you know, another example where multinationals do better is if you engage in international trade in times of heightened uncertainty, you always face the risk of not being paid for the goods you ship. If you're a multinational firm, half of your trade is done with your affiliates uh, or within your network, you don't have that problem. This alone gives you a big advantage during times of uncertainty. So what we are going to see is um, large, more, you know, firms with market power uh, doing better during the crisis. And it will be up to the governments um, to make sure that they behave well. The other aspects of what governments should do is, and that's 
you know, brings me back again to our transition report is that if we are going to see governments rescuing firms, governments nationalizing firms um, in emerging markets where rules governing state-owned enterprises which leave a lot to be desired, um, there is a real danger that the playing field will be tilted against private sector. So I think improving the framework that governs state-owned enterprises is an urgent task that governments need to engage in. All right, quite a few policy uh, prescriptions there. We might uh, come back towards the very end of the discussion on that. Uh, I want to just, before we take some uh, audience questions, just to spend two or three minutes or slightly longer looking at this question, which was raised earlier of international inequality uh, and the narrowing of that, which is, which is an interesting concept. Angus, do you want to say a little bit about the, that work? Yeah, well, I, I'm, of course, very excited about this because I just finished writing a paper about it and... Um, you know, there's been a sort of presumption out there that um, international inequality would increase as a result of the pandemic. Um, and that poorer countries would become relatively poorer and richer countries, though they would suffer, would not suffer as much. And, you know, when you think about it, it makes sense because we have better hospitals, we have better preparedness, all the things that Branko was talking about in that report. Um, you know, so you would expect if a pandemic like this comes along, it would hurt um, places where, you know, the total number of ICU beds in the country is like five, which is the case in many African countries, um, compared to the U.S. where there's a big ability to capture that. But it turns out for, you know, a number of reasons, including, for instance, the age structure of um, poorer populations, which are very much younger, that the deaths per million have been much higher in rich countries than in poor countries. Um, that plays into a debate that's going on. People like to say, well, America only has a quarter of the world's population, but it has 25% of the world's COVID death. Well, that ratio is even worse for Britain. It's worse for Belgium. It's worse uh, by the same for Sweden. Um, and, you know, many rich countries, some rich countries like Canada or Japan have done much better, but a lot of them have done even worse. So what's happened is the, the poorer countries have fewer deaths per million. If you look at the IMF's latest calculations, also the World Bank's latest calculations of the growth between 2020 and 2019, um, that growth it was deeply affected by the deaths. So there's actually quite a tight relationship um, in the countries that had more deaths per million have actually had the largest negative growth rates. So. Um, deaths per million really does hurt the economy. That's sort of important in a way too, because at the beginning of this pandemic, and it was never universally accepted, there was a thought that there was a trade-off. Um, you could have your money or your life, and you could shut down the economy and save a lot of lives, um, or you could keep the economy open and a lot of people would die, but exactly the opposite turned out to be true. The places where there were few deaths were the places where the economies did best. So you've got these two facts. One is a larger number of deaths per million in poorer countries, um, larger effects, larger economic hurts in places where deaths were largest. And if you put those two things together, you've got a fairly mild relationship, but it's still in the same direction, that the richer countries in 2019 had the worst growth experiences between 2019 and 2020. So the rich countries went down more than the poor countries did on average. 
And if you just take country by country and compute income inequality in per capita income, one country is a, each country is a unit, then there's been a decrease um, in global income inequality. And on Branko's suggestion, actually, I went back to the IMF World Economic Outlook um, just before the pandemic and calculated what international inequality would have been given that. And you can see that the actual decrease between the 2019 and 2020 World Economic Outlooks. Um, if you look at, if you weight it by people, by population, which is what Branko has labeled concept two inequality, which is like giving everybody in China Chinese per capita income, everybody in Britain British per capita income. You calculate world inequality on that basis, it's actually increased a little because of the pandemic. And that's happened not because the rich countries are pulling away from the poor countries, but because China is pulling away from poorer countries. So you can think of it in terms of China has done much better than India. And that's actually maybe, um, you know, and between them, they have 2.8 billion of the world's 7.8 billion population. And so the, the divergence of India and China has almost been enough, um, which the pandemic has exacerbated, has widened, um, has um, increased in international inequality. But just again, I mean, people are so hooked up on saying inequality is bad that they think I'm saying the pandemic wasn't a bad thing, which is not what I'm saying at all. I mean, you know, poorer countries are much poorer than rich countries. So even a smaller decrease in GDP per national income is going to cause much more suffering. So the, my statement here is about inequality. It's not about suffering. And inequality and suffering are very, very different things. Thanks. Yeah, some interesting, interesting points there, Angus. And if I could take perhaps them, them up with Branko. I mean, Branko, in a way, your previous comments play into this as well. You know, you, you could actually narrow international inequality further if, uh, if you have that global labor market, which may come about as a result of people now being more willing to, uh, to be online for jobs. Yes, I, yeah, I think actually first let me say that Angus's work is really, I mean, really quite exciting. And so actually the paper I think was released yesterday uh, is the first empirical study of what, what actually is likely to happen to global inequality. And what was also very interesting, I don't want to repeat what Angus has very well explained, but the role of China is really crucial. And that role uh, would have played the same in the sense that China by growing is really creating the distance between herself and many other countries that are, you know, particularly in Africa, large countries like Sudan, Ethiopia, uh, Nigeria, and so on. But again, COVID has sort of accelerated that because China is the only major country with positive growth this year. As Angus said, India, I think, has like a, a expected a, a negative growth of, I think, eight or 10%. So the distance has increased. So in some sense, COVID has accelerated that uh, sort of end of reliance yeah, yeah. on China as a source, as the engine of reduction of global inequality. So basically, China is no longer that engine. And it's no longer that engine because it has become sufficiently rich, which then has the following implication. Our next engines, if we will have to have one or two rather, uh, would be India and Africa, which really is becoming much more important simply also because it's the only continent with increase in population. So this is really, I think, a very interesting development. 
And again, we, we tend very often now because inequality has become such a popular topic, which of course I enjoy, but really we, believe, we tend to believe that every negative development has to have a higher increase, I mean, lead to an increase in equality, in inequality. So when you tell people that global inequality has been on the decline since probably 1990, uh, they are somehow sort of lost a little bit because they expect that all the bad developments have, somehow have to have an outcome which is higher inequality. But on a global level, that was not the case. However, that could be possibly reversed for the reasons that I just mentioned before, the role of China and the absence of sufficient convergence or sufficient growth in Africa and in, well, the Middle East is now the EBRD's part. So that's another area that actually is crucial. And um, obviously what happens uh, in India. So we really have, it's, it's a, I think an extremely interesting work that Agnes did and actually raises many of these questions um, that we had in the back of our mind before, but we did, just didn't have the numbers. All right, thank you, Branko. And Beata, there are opportunities here, I guess, for EBRD countries in this narrowing of inequality and opening up of opportunities as a result of this crisis, uh, if one looks perhaps slightly further ahead. Uh, there are, but if I may just add to the previous question on, on international inequality, um, I think other than China, I think the jury is still out what will happen. Um, in countries where we operate, um, particularly Eastern Europe, former Soviet Union, everybody was very impressed with many of these countries in the, during the first wave of the pandemic. Now, six months ago, I was getting questions from journalists. Why did Eastern Europe do so well? Now, the fortunes have been reversed and the picture is not very pretty. Many of the countries where we operate are topping the charts when it comes to cumulative death per million of population. You know, among them is Slovenia, Bosnia and Herzegovina and North Macedonia. But even bigger countries, um, Bulgaria and Hungary have much worse figures um, than the US or the UK, which you know, is, is a saying a lot. And you know, while the UK has vaccinated 4% of the population, US two and a half, among our countries, those that have done the best have managed to vaccinate 1%. Now, if you look at what has been announced in terms of vaccine orders, uh, the EU has ordered you know, two to three times as many vaccines, taking into account the two regimen dosage as you know, the population size. For most of our countries, the orders are about 50%, would cover about 50% of the population. And on top of that, you know, half of the people in Russia and Poland say, we don't want to get vaccinated. Why, you know, in the UK and, and the EU, it's, it's, in the US, it's three quarters of the population, 90% in China. So, you know, the jury is still out how COVID will play out in emerging markets. But on the sort of positive side, on sort of opportunities, you know, there are two of them. One is what Branco has been mentioning, uh, this global labor market for services working from home, which can enable many of our countries to export services without actually sending migrants and without, you know, movement of people, perhaps only involving occasional travel. And then the second possibility is 
um, reshaping of global value chains. It, it may not happen tomorrow, but I think there will be a trend towards reshaping uh, global value chains, particularly, I think, um, given Europeans' commitment to, um, to low carbon economy uh, and the need to introduce carbon adjustment taxes means that those of our countries that are able to produce clean energy, which we as EBRD support, will have comparative advantage when it comes to locating climate. All right, thank you very much. Let's uh, take a breath for a second. We're gonna to come to audience questions uh, very, very imminently. But first, uh, I'd like to turn to our Director of Gender and Economic Inclusion at the EBRD, Barbara Rambusek. She's been listening to this debate. Barbara, I think you've got a few reflections on what you've heard and your thoughts on, on this question of inequality. So thank you very much um, for, for this conversation. I think this is incredibly important for, for EBRD, particularly in this year, where we are designing our new approach um, and expanded approach to equality of opportunity. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for, for, for the opportunity to have this conversation. At EBRD, we really very strongly focus on equality of opportunity, and I can really only echo uh, the, the, the points that were made earlier on about the good cholesterol and the bad cholesterol. Inequality per se is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is the unfair part of inequality in a way where regardless of what effort do you put in, uh, if it's characteristics outside of your personal control that shape your access, say, to economic opportunity, that really create the problem also at a social level, at a political level. So that's fundamentally what we target. And we know from um, our previous transition reports and research that particularly in our region, it is that unfair cholesterol that uh, shapes um, inequality in outcomes, for example, to a large extent, up to 50% uh, due to factors such as gender or region uh, across some parts of our, our, our region. Some of the points, two points in particular that I want wanted to raise um, in addition to uh, the, the points already made. Um, our one, if we look at this shock that has um, come in as a result of the COVID crisis, we've discussed its, its impact uh, on, on, on women, on youth. Um, we've touched on the regional aspect as well. But here I really would like to, to um, in a way, throw in the question as well to, to our speakers about um, the, the impact that we see in regions that are largely dependent on, for example, sectors that are hugely impacted by the crisis, such as tourism. We see livelihoods eroded um, and we see basically the economic basis of some regions taken away. We have also um, looked at um, opportunities that are created as a result of digitalization, um, maybe migration being less important if you can connect via, via your computer. But what about those jobs that can't be done on the computer, low skill jobs, service type of jobs? Um, and if you look at, back at the regions, this opportunity to migrate at the moment is severely limited or actually not there. So um, I think particularly from Branke, it would be interesting to hear from you, your views on that. Was that. What does that mean in the short term, but particularly also in the long term? And then the second point I wanted to raise was, in a way, this shock that we are experiencing at the moment in relation to fraud coming from COVID overlays some existing stresses in relation to climate change. And here we've heard the reference to coal, but we are also looking at uh, extreme weather events that make, for example, agriculture uh, unfeasible in certain parts of our region. So um, what, where do you see the linkages there? 
Uh, and then secondly, digitalization, automation, again, for some types of livelihoods, for some types of jobs, this creates huge opportunities, and therefore also for some types of groups, but for others, it actually takes them away. And the, the crisis really, uh, I think, exacerbates that further. So I wanted to add those two points, um, and thank you again very much for, for this conversation. Thank you very much indeed, Barbara, and we'll try and address some of those points if we can. We have about uh, 18 minutes left and we have uh, quite a few audience questions as well. Uh, first of all, just to say there's a sort of general feeling on Facebook, uh, Beata, you'll be glad to hear that quite a lot of comments by women agree with your sentiment about gender inequality. And thank you for pointing it out. That seems to be a fairly, uh, fairly widespread feeling. Uh, let's go to some of the questions. And actually, it's one probably for you, Beata, first of all. It's a question from Facebook from uh, Achil Bacharadze, uh, who I guess is Georgian. Uh, how much inequality is good for social cohesion? And what should former Soviet economies do in terms of tax regimes, property education and other domains in terms of inequality? That's quite a broad, a broad question, but uh, try and address a bit of it uh, relatively swiftly, if you could. I think it depends on societal preferences, right? I mean, different societies have different um, tolerance of inequality and different preferences. And, and you can see it very starkly uh, when you compare Europe, particularly Nordic countries to the United States. Um, these are societies that want different things. In the US, it's this ethos of self-reliance. Uh, why in Norway, it's about solidarity and transparency and willingness um, to pay high taxes, right? So for instance, in Norway, anybody can see anybody else's tax return, which immediately um, generates enforcement and it's, it's sort of it reflects social acceptance of high tax payments as a duty. Um, so I don't think there, there is a target level of inequality we should aim for. It's, it depends what the society wants. And I think that um, former communist countries are not homogeneous in that respect. Okay, another question that's uh, come in, uh, and I'll turn to Angus and Branko uh, initially for this one from Stuart Trow. Is the silver lining to the COVID tragedy uh, that it has brought fiscal policy forward as a means of stimulus instead of relying purely on monetary policy, which uh, Stuart says is essentially trickle down economics disguised as inflation trading? Uh, it's the rise of fis fiscal policy then, Angus. Yeah, I think um, the, the um... I, I agree with the, the premise of the question. I'm not sure about the last bit of it, but um, <laughs> the, um, it, it certainly has demonstrated a range of possibilities that we did not know was possible. Um, and, you know, the, the CARES Act in the US and the more later act, um, the, um, you know, to support uh, people who are hurting. Um, I think even if you told us in advance that even with the pandemic, I think we would have thought, um, you know, that could not happen, that they just would not go along with it. But it is true that even recalcitrant legislatures are, are capable of changing their mind given enough pressure um, from the outside. And um, I think we ought to maintain that. But we've already talked about the dangers of austerity coming roaring back. And I think that's something we have to be very careful about. Franco, what do you think about uh, future use of fiscal policy? 
Really, I mean, I would just keep that. I think I, I, I said what I thought of this, and um, I think Angus has also addressed it and Beata, so we can move okay. on to the next one. Beata, a slightly different take on that for you. Of course, you know, for a lot of EBRD countries, they don't really have much fiscal headroom. Um, I think I would disagree with this, and I think we discussed this in the latest um, regional economic prospects, um, that other than countries such as Lebanon, which for obvious reasons had mm -hmm. difficulties, cap. Yeah. Mm -hmm. many of our countries actually were able to borrow much more cheaply than even five or ten years ago, and um, they were able to... to to enjoy fiscal space that they didn't have 20 years ago. Um, so in that sense, um, they've done well. Of course, that doesn't mean um, that there are no consequences. I think on average, the increase in debt to GDP ratio for our countries is 11%. A third of this is new borrowing. Um, two th I think two thirds is, is you know, declining GDP and exchange rate movements. So do you think they'll have fiscal space going forward then? There is some fiscal space. Obviously, it's not unlimited. I think the more relevant question is how to spend the money well. And that's a huge challenge for our countries because, you know, they have this governance debt uh, gap, right? The, um, so it's about spending money well in a way that will create foundations for future growth. Because it's very easy to spend the money, right? It's just how to spend it in a way that will pay dividends in the future. That's hard. Okay. Uh, let's have a question from Gabriel Romeo. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly what he means by this question in terms of the geography. He says, does the states, and I don't know whether he means the United States or whether he means do the states in general, countries in general, have the political strength to seriously face income inequality, in other words, to combat income inequality? If yes, do you think a citizen's dividend, a public wealth fund, would be an effective measure? So, yeah, so the clarification is countries in general. Do countries in general have the um, governments really have the political strength to, to confront this issue? Angus? I don't really like to think about it that way. I mean, I think um, my friend Jason Furman likes to make the point that reducing inequality is not a policy, right? There is no policy with, that is reducing inequality. There are specific policies, and a specific policy might be a change in the tax structure. It might also be antitrust um, enforcement. It may be changing the way political campaigns are financed and so on. So I think that if you don't think of inequality as an amorphous thing, but you think of unfairness, you think of the corruption of processes, um, you think of procedural inequality and so on. There are lots of specific tasks that you can do, and some of them have a lot more political support than others. Um, the right hates rent-seeking almost as much as the left hates rent-seeking. So there's a real bridge to be built there, and everybody agrees that rent-seeking is wrong, and so you can build a coalition of people that will take on the rent seekers, the people who are making enormous sums of money from it. So that's a hopeful um, way forward. And I have come to think in terms of not having political will, I don't know what that means, but building coalitions around particular issues and particular policies. And I think that's a much more helpful way to think of it than to think about whether or not we have the political will to 
it's inequality. I don't really know what that means. Okay, Branko, what do you think about that question? Well, I think it's, it's a very broad question, you know, uh, broad in the sense that, of course, countries are different, you know, there are different political coalitions or even like even countries, individual countries are different depending who is in power when. So it's, it's a very broad question. Secondly, uh, you know, um, the tools for inequality reduction are very different depending on what is the essential problem. One type of uh, inequality reduction should be done in South Africa. A different type may be done in um, Macedonia. You know, it's, it's uh, so uh, broad that we, there is no sort of a um, one fit all uh, approach or a kit which would say to you, that's what you have to do in all different, um, in all the countries. So I think it is, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's very difficult to, you know, I've worked for many countries, but I cannot say, for example, in Egypt, that what, you know, you could do. And I remember working on Egypt, um, Egypt inequality after the Arab Spring is the same that you should do in the US today. So I think they are really very different, um, mm -hmm. you know, different cases. Fair enough. Okay, one other question. Uh, this comes from Osran Tosic. Uh, a survey show that people trust their employers more than governments when it comes down to public health. Can you comment whether the role of the private sector in public health and equality should be bigger than it is? Uh, is there a bigger role, do you think, for the private sector in this area, Beata? Um, so it is an opportunity for private sector to do something good in countries where um, governments don't enjoy much trust um, among the population. Um, the, the part that I worry about is, you know, are employers qualified to disperse um, public health messages? I, I mean, I, I, I would worry about sort of firms distorting messages or perhaps pushing people to vaccinate against their will. It's, it's, it's one thing to say, you know, vaccinations have a great public, um, public good externality aspect. It's another thing to start pushing employees um, to vaccinate, forcing them. Um, so I would be a bit careful here and encourage employers um, to promote messages that are um, given by public health authorities. All right, thank you. Right, let's move away from our questions. Let's just try to uh, conclude here with some final thoughts. And, and I wonder for each of you, just very briefly, what you think are the next steps in this policy discussion to get some action on this question of uh, inequality after, during and after this crisis. Uh, Angus Deaton, what do you think are the next steps that should really be taken? Well, I, I think um, there is both academia is involved in this and, um, you know, policymakers are involved in this too. I think it would be very good if we could get away from thinking about inequality as an amorphous thing and thinking about inequality as a problem. You know, if the results I talked about earlier are true, we could reduce international inequality by having another epidemic, right? That would be a terrible idea. Um, and so the idea that we have to reduce inequality, I don't think is a good way to shape this discussion. 
I think we have to identify particular problems, particular things that are hurting people, and we want to make our societies better places. And some of the things we've talked about um, really would be very good ways of doing that. And just as a coda, um, I want to um, re-emphasize something Viata said, that the shape of this epidemic is changing all the time. And every time, you know, I tend to look at the data every few days, every few days there's something new that I haven't seen before. And the dynamics of this epidemic are not at all well understood. And the countries that thought they were out of the woods are suddenly deep in the woods again. And the countries that have been doing badly now are doing well. And, you know, this is a mess and we don't know what's happening. And if anything should teach us that the unpredictability of the future, um, this really should be it. Thank you. Yes, it's a very good lesson on complacency, this epidemic, I think, actually. Uh, Branko. Yeah, I think it's also a good lesson on our uh, epistemological difficulty of really understanding things. As I mentioned before, we our expectation regarding the countries that would handle the best the crisis was entirely different from the outcomes. Now, you know, as Vata said, and also Angus, you know, the outcomes are not yet known because things are changing and particularly now with vaccination having very different effects in different countries. And actually some countries that were doing the worst like the UK and the US are in the vaccination area now improving their position. Uh, especially if Biden, what, what Biden promises to do of vaccinating 1 million people per day would really mean that the US might actually, you know, have a significant percentage of its population vaccinated by May 1st or June 1st of this year. So, you know, the dynamics are changing all the time. Now, let me just say one thing where I believe, I hope actually that we would think much more seriously in the future is uh, the health system. And I'm not somebody who has studied the health system, but certainly we need much more redundancy in the health system. I don't think we can run hospitals the way that we run hotels. Uh, we cannot do, you know, McKinsey sort of, sort of studies on running the hospitals. And I think this has been shown in this case uh, with the, the measure, austerity measures that have really backfired because we did not have enough you know, precisely redundancy that we need to have. And uh, let me just give an example that we all know you have redundancies when you have, when you fly on short-term flights between different cities in Europe, you always have, and of course in the world as well, you have two pilots, you don't have one. I have never been on a plane that one of the pilots had a heart attack uh, so that he could not, uh, you know, uh, uh, remain sort of uh, on the on his post on his job, but uh, and so the likelihood of this happening, I think, is pretty low. But because the costs of that are so tremendous that you have to have redundancy and you have to have the, the second pilot, the same as I think is exactly true for um, for health. And I think that that would actually make this. I hope this crisis makes us reflect on that and. Um, uh, make us actually do a much better job in the future. All right, Branko, thank you. And Beata? I think we need to make progress when it comes to international cooperation on taxing multinationals and tech, and tech giants. Right? It's not about increasing taxes, it's about um, getting payments of 
the of tax rates which are currently on the books, which you know many corporations are not paying because they are using often legal ways of uh, tax management by, for instance, using tax havens. And if we just make progress in this area, this will give us more revenue to help those in need. All right. Thank you very much indeed. An interesting discussion. A big thank you to our three panellists, to Beata, to Branko, to Angus, to Odile for joining us at the beginning, of course, with her comments. Clearly, this is going to remain a very big topic uh, weighing heavily on our regions and beyond. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to come back to this discussion and different aspects uh, of it on many occasions, especially as we shape uh, the EBRD approach to, to these issues as we, as we go forward. Um, big thank you to the panel. Big thank you to you as the audience for being with us. This episode is part of our coronavirus special series, by the way. Uh, we're going to be posting a podcast of today's session a little later on. You can download it on iTunes. Reviewing it and rating it will help others to find us, of course, and to find this particular podcast. So please do that. We'd love to hear from you as well, from your comments uh, directly on this. Uh, I'm Jonathan Charles. Thank you from me. Stay safe. Goodbye. You are listening to the Coronavirus Special, brought to you by the EBRD.